Because the call to leadership is serious, the qualifications for leadership are serious as well. The church is the Lord's. The body of Christ bought by the body of Christ. His inheritance that will one day be his very own. It is a precious treasure and therefore it necessitates very precious care. Therefore, the call is serious. The call to leadership. Something that I hope we've already realized after two weeks in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. But now we begin to look at the qualifications. Again, because the call to leadership is serious, the qualifications are serious as well. The call to leadership is a noble call, a call to mastery which the elder exercises oversight of the church. Again, as we learned last week. Now we see the beginning of that mastery by looking at the overseer's mastery over his own life. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, The Elder's Call, A Call to Mastery Over His Own Life. As always, I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to, how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own household well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. D.A. Carson writes, The most extraordinary thing about the biblical prerequisites for elders is they are not all that extraordinary. When we read the list of qualifications as we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in our scripture reading this morning from Titus chapter 1, what we see is none of these have a shock factor. None of them are so incredible that we are astonished that God has included them in his word as requirements for leadership. A holy God will expect holiness from his under-shepherds. As ones who represent him, 
his ambassadors on earth, no doubt he calls upon them to represent his interest. These characteristics then serve a purpose. First, they are means of acting for the Lord's glory. By walking in the character of Christ, they point people to Christ. But these qualifications are not arbitrary characteristics of Christ-likeness. A leader who has proven himself faithful in these areas, proven faithful in his own life, proves his interest in serving the Lord by leading God's people towards him, not to themselves. He shows himself interested in the things of the Lord and thus will be a leader who leads people towards him, not away from him. Much like the Lord's statutes in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 15, the qualifications given here are also a means to protect the church, both the institution and the individuals. Several years ago, we were talking to a church, and they were facing some very dire circumstances. They found themselves without a pastor after slightly humorous and laughable circumstances, but also very alarming situations in which the pastor, after a number of confrontations with church leadership and others in the church, one day showed up at his office to work and changed all the locks, not just on his office, but the entire church. It was his way of gaining authority over everybody to the point that he even literally said, this is my church, it is my church, and I will run it the way I want. So when the elders showed up for a meeting later that day, they couldn't get into the building because he had changed those locks. And then that pastor called the police, and not just the police, he called a news crew. So in the small town, that church became known, and not in a good way. The pastoral search committee admitted they hadn't done the background. In fact, they admitted not just in leaders, or not in that pastoral candidate, but even in their leaders, they never sought to see if they were qualified. These credentials laid out in 1 Timothy are a means to protect the church, first as an institution, so that the institution will maintain a positive testimony for the Lord. But it's also a means to protect the individuals of the church so that they're not forced to be under tyrannical leadership. Those who have these credentials have shown themselves that they will follow the Lord's will, shepherding the people by helping them rather than hurting them. These are the leaders who will do the hard things for the sake of glorifying the Lord and doing his will by stewarding the people towards him. The church in Ephesus lacks leadership like this. They are leaders who are more concerned about their own worth than the worth of Christ. <coughs> they lack integrity to do the right thing and the awareness of the needs of the people. At this point, when we come to 1 Timothy, those leaders aren't even protecting the people from the damaging doctrines that are infiltrating that church. That's why Timothy has been left there to deal with that false teaching and the leaders who are continuing to allow it to be propagated. Later on in 1 Timothy, those leaders are described as puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, 
and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That very description is the exact opposite of the qualifications we see in our text. But then it goes on later on, even later in 1 Timothy, to say, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. These leaders, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That's the description that Paul gives of that church at that time. Having other priorities, the leaders will not worry about themselves with contending for what is right for God or his people. If the leaders of the Ephesian church really loved God and loved others, they would have protected the people from the false teachers rather than actually becoming false teachers themselves. The situation where Timothy is in Ephesus points to the importance of finding qualified leadership. The church in Ephesus needed men who were faithful to the Lord and faithful to his people. Those men who would be willing to do the hard things like defended the truth, confront the wayward people, and believe it or not, even walk alongside them in their most unbearable moments and most unbearable burdens. By not finding qualified men, the Ephesian church was left to languish. For the sake of protecting the church, these qualities in 1 Timothy are critical. They are non-negotiable. The Ephesian church presents itself as a case study of what happens when churches choose to compromise on the qualification of leadership. We would do well to remember that our God is flawless, as I've pointed out multiple times as we've gone through this. He is without flaw, he is without fault, and he is without error. So that all that he does and all that he commands is also without flaw, fault, or error. When the Lord gives instructions through his word about the criteria for leadership then, it is not only his perfect will, but it is a perfect design so that the church will function perfectly. The list of qualifications points to the quality and depth of godliness that are indispensable for the magnitude and the gravity that comes with the role of leadership. When we fail to abide by the instructions set forth by the Lord, we not only fail to be in the very perfect will of God, but then what happens is we open the door to flaw and fault. And we become complicit then in compromise and derelict in our duty to be followers of Christ. To rule well the church, in the church, one must first rule well outside the church. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 gives four domains where the potential leader must show himself capable of godly leadership before leading the church. And it begins with his very own life, his very own character. One who is called to exercise authority over the church must first exercise mastery over his own life. <coughs> Francois Rabelais, a French satirist of 16th century, rightly asks, How shall I be able to rule over others if I have not full power and command of myself? Writing to Timothy, again, who has been left at Ephesus, 
to contend with the situation, Paul's just written, verse 1, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. The work of an elder is a good work, but is only good if he is qualified for it. So if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it says, then he desires a good work. Therefore, next word, therefore, it continues, he should have good character. If he desires the good work and wants to be part of the good work, he should have good character. And that good character is then defined for us. Verses 2 and 3, above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. One who will be in leadership over the church shows himself qualified first by exercising mastery over his own life. He shall rule over his own words and his own actions. He should subdue his own steps and tame his own tongue. His reputation is to be enduring and excellent, both inside the church and outside the church. And so we look upon this text and we notice five specific areas in which a leader is to show mastery over his own life. I want you to note first his conduct. A leader must exercise mastery over his conduct. First two criteria given there above reproach, and the husband of one wife. Together those convey a reputation of godliness committed to the will of God, the revealed will of God as it is revealed in Scripture. They speak to his contact both on behalf of the Lord and before the Lord. What does it mean to be above reproach? It's actually quite simple. It means to be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The call to be above reproach contains all those other critical steps and criteria listed in the rest of those verses. Above reproach conveys the idea of being blameless. It describes a mature Christian who consistently lives out the word of God in his life. His character is so spotless that no one can furnish any ground for accusation against him that would at least stick. When Daniel rose to prominence in the kingdom of Darius, the satraps became jealous of him. And eventually they started plotting against Daniel. But Daniel 6.4 tells us this. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regards to the kingdom. But, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Daniel was above reproach so that no charge ever brought against him would ever hold. Above reproach doesn't mean without criticism. According to Romans and Hebrews, 
our Lord Jesus Christ was reproached and criticized. Eventually, it led to his death on the cross. Paul himself was criticized. Some said of Paul in 2 Corinthians, his letters are weighty and strong. His bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That's their words and indictment against Paul. So criticism will happen. If, if Paul and Jesus will be criticized, that could happen to any of us. But in both cases, their reputation was so high that no credible, no credible claim could be made to obscure their testimony. As a representative of God, leaders are called to lead in godliness of the same caliber. This call to be above reproach, it's, it's not actually limited to just leaders. It is a call of every believer to represent the Lord with a testimony that is blameless in this way. In 1 Timothy 5.7, discussing widows, the church is instructed to teach widows to be above reproach. And then in the next chapter, it reads, keep the commandment to be unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's written to everybody, that everybody is to maintain a testimony above reproach. All are called to be blameless. So there's nothing exceptionable here. But the point is critical for leaders because they model that above reproach for the rest of the body of Christ. As leaders, the body of Christ looks to them for examples of what it means to be above reproach. The people of the church could hardly be expected to follow the will of the Lord if the leaders themselves are not following the will of the Lord. And then we have this next phrase, husband of one wife, and it lends itself as an example of what it means to be above reproach. There was a common inscription on the tombstone of women during Paul's era. If you went to the cemeteries or graveyards of that time, you would find this on a wife's tomb quite frequently. One husband type of wife. It was expected during that time that wives would be faithful to their husbands. A woman was well thought of if she maintained fidelity in the marriage. But that wasn't necessarily the case of men. But what Paul does here is he takes this cultural expectation of women and now transforms it into an expectation of the men, applies it to them. Marriage is undermined, or was at that time and still is, by frequent divorce. It was undermined by widespread adultery and even rampant homosexuality. There's a Greek statesman by the name of Demosthenes who wrote at that time, these are his words, not mine. Make sure you keep that straight. <laughs> Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our person, but wives to bear as legitimate children. That was their view. But marriage is a gift of the Lord. And because marriage is a gift of the Lord, picturing the relationship between believers and their Savior, it is a sacred institution. And so perversion of it can be tolerated. The importance of marriage is captured by that qualification there. Husband of one wife. Literally is to be a one-woman sort of man. There's a dog called the Airedale. It's a type of terrier. And the description of the Airedale is 
one man dog. One man dog. And it is because his nature is one of such loyalty that that dog will attach itself to one man, one person. Repeatedly overheard conversations between women and their girlfriends that say men are such dogs. In this case, I hope so. We should be. Unwaveringly faithful, completely loyal to their wives, fulfilling that call of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But then it leaves us wondering what the intention of this verse is. It comes with a variety of applications and interpretations. Some will say husband and one wife means that anybody who's going to be in leadership must be married. Worth noting, though, is really this doesn't prevent single men from serving in leadership, that they indeed could fulfill that call. And we know that because Paul commends singleness to the Christians. Actually talks about it and says sometimes they should be. Based on 1 Corinthians 9, some think Paul himself was single. So it can't mean that. But then we have this husband of one wife. And by that use of the word one, others think that, or suggest that Paul was instructing the leaders to avoid polygamy, to avoid having multiple wives. Well, we know that's certainly the case. But there's no need for him to say that here because that's already said elsewhere in Scripture. That limitation has been put into effect for all people, and so it hardly needs to be repeated here. But even more importantly or more notably is at the time that Paul writes, polygamy is really not that common. There's no need for him to give a huge teaching on it and address it here because most weren't even participating in that. So the most common interpretation when reading this verse is that it speaks to divorce, suggesting that leaders must never divorce or must never remarry after divorce, and there's even a variety of interpretations in that. What does it mean for men who are divorced? It's a common question when, we, when reading this text, especially in a culture now where divorce is common. Divorce is, as a rule, just outside of God's revealed will. We see that in Scripture. And yet, based on Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 and Mark 10, some will say that the Lord has made allowances for divorce, but only if certain criteria are met. and gives specific qualifications to when divorce is permissible. I want to be clear here as we discuss this. Can a divorced man then serve in leadership? And I'm not going to answer that for you. But I will give you some constraints that I think are very important and some principles of wisdom that we need to look at or consider. At the loosest translation, I think we can say it may be possible that a divorced man serves. But he would need to be examined carefully. At the very strictest, some would say a divorced man cannot serve whatsoever. The most stringent of interpretations, some say divorced men are, are not permitted, and then at the other end, some would say, yeah, they could serve if they meet the other criteria listed in Scripture. But I think there's more that we need to think about there. We go back to the above reproach. One who is divorced is more open to accusation. 
more open to perhaps embarrassing situations from previous spouses or maybe even his children. And that could possibly help him not meet the qualification of being above reproach. Whether you fall on either side of those, I think there needs to be a thorough examination. But I also think that the debate about divorce derails us from a primary aspect of this verse. And it's not just, is he divorced or not? I think we need to be examining men and asking, what is their relationship with their wife if they are married? What is his commitment to her? If he cannot faithfully commit to loving his own bride, how can he faithfully commit to loving the bride of Christ? Winston Churchill once attended a formal banquet in London, and dignitaries were asked all kinds of questions, including him. And the one asked of him is, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And so everyone was curious, what is Churchill going to say? He was seated next to his wife at the time. And when it was finally his turn, he responded this way. If I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. First off, he's quite a clever and wise man and statesman. But it points to the devotion he had for his wife, too. An overseer and elders called to lead a life that is radically different from the world. They are called to lead others to holiness, and so holiness must be the standard of their own lives. Above reproach, husband of one life. To lead the church, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, all words that mean the same thing, whatever title you choose to use there, he must have authority over his own conduct. And with that, I want you to note, second, his control. One who exercises a level of control in the church must exercise a level of control over his own life. Notice the two words, the next two words. As the text says, an overseer must be sober-minded and self-controlled. Charged with making decisions on behalf of the Lord's church and stewarding people for the Lord's glory. Leaders cannot be prone to rashness or emotional swings. To lead well, one must lead sensibly with full control over himself. The one who is impulsive and unplanned, he'll make decisions in that moment without thinking based upon not on the truth of God, or the leading of God's spirit, but upon personal preferences and individual inclinations. But the one who is sober-minded and the one who is self-controlled is the one who will be sensible and temperate. He won't lead with rashness, but soberly considers what will be pleasing to the Lord and what will be most beneficial to the Lord's people. He is watchful. That's actually the significance of that word, sober-minded, watchful or vigilant. It's used to describe a person who walks at night in the city, and in doing so is not paranoid, but is vigilant of the danger around them. 
In an area that we once did ministry, it was known for petty crime, most of the country was, but especially of theft. And so whenever we entered this one particular city, we would go park the car before we actually parked the car, meaning we would pull off the side of the road and stop somewhere, somewhere at random, take everything out that we weren't taking with us and make sure it was hidden, usually in the trunk, so that you could not see anything. And then we would go park the car. That would appear paranoid to a lot of people. But in that area, that was routine. Everybody did that. It's what everybody did because if they didn't, if they saw even the slightest piece of paper, your car would be broken into. It was not paranoid. It was being vigilant. A watchful, I would say, as intended by the wording of Paul here in the text. Sober-minded, watchful. Peter uses those same words in his first epistle, saying, be sober-minded, be watchful. Do you know what follows those words when Peter says that? Do you remember why Peter says that? First Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan prowls around, seeking to devour people. It doesn't say how, which means that probably open to Satan is a variety of ways to devour people. Within the constraints that the Lord has given him, he is free to put his skills to work, to the test, to bring about the downfall of people and the downfall of the church. And he will seek to deceive people, propagating falsehood and false teaching. We've already seen its effects in Ephesus. But we also seek to defeat leadership because the greatest damage done to the testimony of Christ is often the moral failure of the leadership of a church. If Satan's methods of devouring the church is deception and defeat, the leadership must be equipped with discernment and defense, meaning discernment to go against that deception and a defense when he tries to defeat leadership. What is that defense? It's discernment. Where does that discernment come from? From being sober-minded and self-controlled. What happens when we make decisions in the middle of chaos? Usually more chaos. But the elder needs wisdom and discernment. He needs clarity thus sober-minded and self-controlled. One who is prone to rashness and emotional volatility will react quickly. But when the situation calls for discernment, the leaders, if they're not sober-minded or self-controlled, they'll respond not with reason but with opinion. They're going to respond not with sense but with emotion. When the situation calls for a defense of the one who is not self-controlled, he will respond in the same way. Leadership comes with many temptations, power, authority, greed. The list goes on. Any one of those may be placed before a leader and be assured that Satan knows how to exploit any man's greatest weakness and he will do whatever he can to exploit it. How frequently do you hear of moral failure at a pastor, at a church, or its leadership? And how damaging is that testimony, not just to the church, 
but to Christianity, to Christ, to God. The qualification of being sober-minded and self-controlled, it's a means of guarding the church from succumbing to these temptations of a secular world and from Satan. The one who is not sober-minded or self-controlled will indeed succumb to Satan's solicitations, driven more by what he wants than what God wants. He will focus more on what he wants instead of what the people need. One who may have any level of control in the church must show that he has control over his own life and his own self. I think for the sake of time, I have to stop here. If I even just get into the next point, we're going to go a long time, especially with communion. But with these just two points, I think it's fair to say that we have a problem in the church in the U.S. By and large, churches who follow the counsel of God's will and God's word, they're finding themselves in a place where they have very few men qualified for leadership. If a church is comfortable with compromising on these principles, they can find all kinds of leaders, some of them even finding them amongst women. But if we're to follow God's perfect design, his impeccable plan, then our options for leadership are limited and churches are struggling to find men then that are selfless, full of godliness, capable of serving the Lord with his qualifications. Bring that up for a reason. It makes me concerned about the future of the church and about the effect that the culture will have on it. And by that, I don't mean that the culture gets to determine who leads the church, nor do I think the church should bend to the culture. That's not what I'm saying. But I do mean to suggest that there is a cultural effect on the church. And as an example, just because it's very easily measurable, let's use divorce that we just talked about. For the sake of argument, using just the most open interpretation of that verse, husband of one wife, to say that men who are divorced according to biblical provisions can be qualified to serve, how many men are limited based on that? Divorce rate in the culture is 50% last time I checked. And the church itself is also compromised on marriage. And you know how I know that? Because divorce rate in the church is... 50%. There's no difference between the rates outside the church or inside of it. Though the church is supposed to be wholly set apart from the culture and look very distinctive from the world, it's indistinguishable from it, at least on this point. And on that point alone, it disqualifies a bunch of men from leadership because even if half of that 50% of those men are quote-unquote have biblical divorces, that still leaves us with quite a few that aren't qualified. But let me take that a clip further. Divorce is easy because we can measure that. I know that 50% of the culture is divorced. But look at the next words that we just went over. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Temperate is another word you could use there. We live in a culture that is transforming itself into a more hostile culture. And I think increase in things like assault and road rage and in similar confrontations will show that to be true. Other people will point to the hostile environment on social media 
as evidence of a more hostile world. I'm not on social media, I can't say, but that's a testimony of people. What is concerning is the increase in which that hostility is just accepted. In fact, it's expected. We expect people to lose control of themselves, and when they do, what do we say? Well, that's just how he or she is. We rationalize it. It becomes accepted as normal both inside the church and outside the church. But if that's that person's usual temperament, according to the Lord's word, that's disqualifying. But that's the way the culture is going. And notice what I said. I'm not suggesting that if somebody had a momentary lapse in judgment and they blew up, they're disqualified. But if a person's reputation and habitual lifestyle is one of hostility and lack of control, then they can't be in leadership. And yet in our culture, that's just expected and just accepted. And then the next step after being accepted is what? To diagnose it. Society will make a medical diagnosis of it to make it even more acceptable. That's actually true with not being temperament and losing self-control. Bethany sent me an article this week. It's called Intermittent Explosive Disorder. IED. How fitting. It's becoming a normalized diagnosis. So here's where I'm going with this. It's accepted in the culture, which means it's getting acceptance in the church. The culture is having influence on our churches and an influence on our people. And in doing so, we're having less men qualified for leadership. If we aren't actively raising up the next generation, the church is going to be in trouble, lacking qualified leaders to even lead it. How fitting then that the Lord has a perfect plan and he, he outlined it in his scripture. It's called discipleship. First in the home, fathers discipling their families, but then in the church. But we've lost that too. And if we're not doing it, where are the leaders gonna come from? There was a time when men from the previous generation were concerned about the direction of country music. They didn't like the tune of the songs, they didn't like the lyrics of the content. And in it they lamented that country music wasn't what it once was and feared where it may go. And then in 1985, George Jones recorded a song written by Max Barnes and Troy Seals called Who's Going to Fill Their Shoes? And in that song, George Jones brings up a bunch of names from the past of those men who had great influence on country music. And then he asks, who's going to fill their shoes? He says it this way, who's going to give their heart and soul to get me and you? Lord, I wonder who's going to fill their shoes. I could ask the same thing of leadership. If the culture has allowed continual influence on the church, I don't think we're out of line to ask. Who's going to give their heart and soul to me, get me and you? Who's going to fill their shoes? Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, we do find ourselves concerned. Who is going to fill their shoes, Lord? But Father, you are a perfect God. A God who has revealed yourself in your word and in creation, and you've revealed your plan for the church. And so, Father, I pray that indeed we would fulfill and follow that plan. Follow your commands, because that is the way leadership is raised, Lord, so that we may see the next generation 
not merely survive, but thrive in a relationship with you, Lord, because that's what we want. We want to see people come to a knowledge of who you are, committing their life to you, accepting that they can do nothing of their own merit, but it is by Christ's work on the cross that they can know you more deeply, Lord. And so, Father, make us churches that as we proclaim that, we would make disciples, raising up the next generation of leaders who would also proclaim that as well, Lord. Make that a burden of our heart. And may we seek to honor and glorify you in that way. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.